Something must be something wrong with me, Linus. Christmas is coming, but I'm not happy. I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. Hopeless. Hopeless. This is bloody hopeless. It's hopeless, Ida. He knows it too. Hopeless. Oh God, it's hopeless. <laughs> She's hopeless. It's hopeless, Figaro. You really are hopeless. Why not? Impossible man. You're such a but not a hopeless. You know what it's like getting up every morning feeling hopeless. You stay in your prison of fear with bars made of hopelessness. Well, this is not mission difficult, Mr. Hunt. It's mission impossible. Escape for Arthur and his knights seemed hopeless. And now that I'm this close, you're telling me it's hopeless. Oh, I'm sorry. No, 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 no way. This is Christmas. But I would like to address your general attitude of hopeless negativism. You are hopeless, child. It's impossible to go to my It's hopeless, Pinocchio. Hopeless. You want the impossible. You've got to get your hands dirty if you're going to achieve the impossible. Merry Christmas, everyone. My name is Scott Raines. I'm one of the pastors here, and we just want to welcome you to Hope. So glad that you've uh, taken the time to come and celebrate the birth of Jesus with us here today. A great big welcome and thank you to those of you in the overflow out in the hall and in the harbor uh, directly below the worship center. Uh, we're trying to make as much room as we possibly can uh, for everyone to come and hear this incredible and life-changing story. Uh, we're getting reports from all of Hope's campuses here in central Iowa that uh, this isn't the only place that is having packed rooms. It's exciting to hear so many people wanting to come and experience the life and the love and the power and the hope that God has for us. And the Christmas story is really all about that, isn't it? I mean, uh, Christmas means different things to different people. And if you are to look at maybe some of the lyrics of our most popular Christmas songs, they're pointing us into kind of one sort of belief about this season. I mean, think about have a holly jolly Christmas it's the best time of the year. I don't know if there'll be snow, spoiler alert, no snow, unless you come in the main entrance and we've got a couple snow machines going, or if you want to sing in the Dickensian, uh, whatever, however you pronounce that, uh, corral that we had, they're getting a little bit of snow, but I don't know if there'll be snow, but have a cup of cheer, or how about it's the most wonderful time of the year? Uh, with the kids jingle belling and everyone telling you, be of good cheer, it's the most wonderful time of the year. How about have yourself a merry little Christmas, let your heart be light. From now on, your troubles 
will be out of sight. It's almost like whoever wrote those songs, they want us to believe the point of this season is to pretend our problems away. Uh, But for a lot of characters, from Charlie Brown to Kevin McAllister in Home Alone and a lot of people in between, uh, this time of the year, the Christmas season can be a season of hopelessness. And if you allow yourself to be honest for a minute or two in the midst of this Christmas Eve service, I wonder how many of us would have to admit there are certain things going on in our life that's making it difficult to swallow that cup of cheer this year. That far from being out of sight, our Our problems, our troubles are constantly occupying our mind. What is it about this life? And I think it kind of gets pronounced this time of year. What is it that can lead us to this place of kind of feeling hopeless? Well, all kinds of options to choose from, really. How about the tearing down of cultural icons? You think about this country, in many ways, America is a country of hero worshipers. We love to have people that we can put up on a pedestal that we can look at and we can look at their story, especially rags to riches story, and we can aspire to do the same thing ourselves. It gives us hope for our futures. But we wake up pretty much every morning wondering which of our heroes is going to fall this day. What what mistake or sin from their past is going to be exposed, revealing them to be a fraud. Sometimes the tearing down of cultural icons can leave us in a hopeless place. How about a general sense that we don't have any control in this life? I think even for people who are not control freaks, we like to have a sense of, you know, there's some things in our life that we have control over. Uh, This is Amy Robach. She's a reporter for ABC News. She was diagnosed with breast cancer when she was 40 years old. And shortly after the diagnosis... Now, she appeared on Good Morning America, and she had changed her look. She had gotten a pretty significant transformative haircut, and so they were asking her about it. And she said, when I got the cancer diagnosis, life just felt out of control. And so I wanted to do something that would cause me to feel like I've regained control of at least one thing in my life. She got a new haircut. And I just don't get that. I don't understand how anyone can think a new haircut or changing their look can somehow, oh yeah, right, this is me last year at Christmas Eve, a little bit longer hair, a fuller beard. Then our son graduated from high school last spring. Now we've, our, our next in line, Hadley is a senior. She'll be graduating and going on. And I'm starting to feel a little old. So I thought, let's get rid of the gray, you know, as much as possible, get rid of the beard, shorter haircut. And now I've suddenly regained control of the aging process, Right. Yeah, right. But we do this in all sorts of ways, don't we? And we're trying to, in an effort to gain some kind of control in a world that often feels out of control. So what happens when we get the new haircut or the new job or the new relationship or the right amount of money in our bank account and then December happens to the stock market and we find ourselves like, I don't know if I have a whole lot of control after all. It can leave us in a pretty hopeless place. So can unmet expectations or addictions. I'm convinced everybody has an addiction. Some of them are socially acceptable, others not so much. But I think all of us, and if you're not comfortable with that language, what are those habits in your life? What are those behavioral patterns that cause you to just trip up time and time again, particularly relational patterns that lead to conflict in the, the relationships that mean the most in your life? Do you ever find yourself at the end of the day just shaking your head wondering, when am I ever going to outgrow this? When am I going to stop doing this? Behaving this way, thinking this way. Some people, it's a sense of being alone at the holidays, and maybe it's family that leads them to this place of hopelessness. 
They're hoping for the family that they do not have. For some people, it's too much family. That's the real hopeless kind of like, can we please have an ice storm so I have a good excuse not to have to go bite my tongue next to my crazy uncle around the Christmas dinner table? And then, of course, there's death. Uh, The finality, the sting, the ache of death, and we just know there's no more hope for one final hug or one final I love you or, or one final conversation that could restore and repair whatever it is that's been broken in that relationship. Far from being out of sight, the lack of hope or the loss of hope in our lives can cause us to be feeling like nothing is merry, nothing is bright. It can leave us in a really dark, dark place. And if that's you, you found yourself walking into worship today kind of feeling a heaviness, a darkness about you, I've got some good news for you. Hope is born in a dark place. Hope is born in a dark place. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and the fears, the hopes and the fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Everybody walked into this building today with hopes about how the holidays are going to go, about how you know, the service is going to go, about how life is going to go. And we also carried fears with us. Sometimes the fear is, what if I get my hopes up and they just get dashed? And I'm not sure that I have the courage to be someone who lives a life marked by hope. So what if this Christmas you embraced the risk and you hoped again? What if this Christmas you discovered the faith to hope again? What if this Christmas hope is born for you? You can feel the winter's darkness creeping in. Gray days give way to pitch black nights. The bitter cynicism of a weary world overshadows your soul. Darkness has no mercy. It has no grace. But that's what you've chosen. Your streets are lined with violence and your children can find no peace. Lord, have mercy. I have nothing left. Save me from my pain. Help me. Free me. God, save me. So here I stand. A fallen world below. A world looking for a savior. And I heard your cries. So I sent my son, my only son, my perfect son. Light is coming. He is coming. It was 1993, and there was a lot of talk in in this country about whether or not professional athletes should be role models. And 
the reporting around athletes had changed from the 50s and 60s where the athletes were doing similar kinds of things, just nobody was reporting it. Now it's getting reported. And so the question is, should kids be looking up to professional athletes? Uh, are they displaying the kind of character and, and behavior that's good for our kids? Because it's always about the kids, isn't it? And so in the midst of this conversation, Charles Barkley uh, famously said, I'm not a role model. Nike did a commercial with him where he says, just because I can dunk a basketball doesn't mean I'm a hero. Uh, parents are the ones who should be role models. And I wonder if 25 years later, Barkley would say the same thing. I read an article uh, last weekend. It was actually a, a story, an audio story, about Charles Barkley's friendship with a cat litter scientist from Iowa. Uh, the story was told by the scientist's daughter. Her name is Shirley Wang. She talked about how her father, Lynn was his name. Lynn met Charles Barkley several uh, years ago in Sacramento, California. Her dad was there for a conference for work. Barkley was there. He had a speaking engagement. They were staying at the same hotel. And one night, they were the only two people in the bar of the hotel. So they struck up a conversation, found out they had a lot to talk about. Barkley says to Lynn, hey, do you want to go get something to eat? So they go and they spend two or three hours talking. They do the same thing the next night and the next night and the next night. At the end of the week, Barkley says to Lynn, hey, let's exchange numbers. And if you're ever in New York or Phoenix or Atlanta, give me a call if I'm in town. I'd love to get together with you and, and hang out or get something to eat or something like that. So Lynn says, absolutely. Here is a picture of him uh, on the TNT studio set with uh, the NBA on TNT with Barkley and Shaq and Kenny and Ernie. And at Phoenix, uh, family dinners, Lynn would tell his family about this great friendship that he had with the NBA uh, superstar, Sir Charles, and nobody would believe him. They're like, come on, dad, maybe you got a selfie with him, but you don't have an actual relationship. Prove it to us. And so he said, okay, uh, here's some text messages that I'm sending to Charles Barkley. Shirley took a screenshot of it. She's like, dad, these are all from you to something that says CB on your phone. How do we know it's actually Charles? He's not sending any text to you. But in the summer of 2015, Charles Barkley's mother died, and Lynn made his way from Iowa to Leeds, Alabama, to be at the funeral of his friend's mother. And everyone at the funeral was saying, who's this guy? Who's this guy? And Barkley says, it's my boy, Lynn. And hung out with Charles for the next several days. 2016, Lynn gets diagnosed with cancer. And surely his daughter is kind of caring for him over the course of two years. He died this summer, and Barclay flew to Iowa, just outside of Iowa City, uh, to speak at the funeral of his friend. And it completely blew Shirley away to know that her father had this kind of a relationship with this NBA Hall of Famer. And so she shares the story on NPR's show, Only a Game. You can read it or you can listen to the audio. I'd encourage you to uh, listen to the audio of the, some of the interviews that she does. But she tells it for several reasons, and as I was reading through the story, there was a line uh, that she spoke at the end of the story that just kind of stuck out to me. She said, my dad's unlikely relationship with Bar Charles Barkley, it's more than a relationship or a friendship with a celebrity. She wrote, it shed light on the possibilities of this world. It shed light on the possibilities of this world. That's what happens when hope is born. It shines a light on what is possible in this world. When we're in those dark places, when we're in those hopeless places, pretty much everything in our life seems impossible. But when we have hope, suddenly everything starts to become possible for us. And that's the Christmas story, isn't it? It's what the birth of Jesus is all about. It sheds a light on the possibilities of this world. 
It's how hope is born in you and in me. The, the classic telling of the story of the birth of Jesus is found in Luke chapter 2, but the story of the birth of hope begins one chapter earlier. Uh, two unexpected pregnancies. There's a woman named Elizabeth who believes she's too old to be a mother, but she becomes pregnant, gives birth to John the Baptist. And then there's Mary. She's not even married when the angel says to her, you're about to become the mother of God, and she does not know what to do with this news. It's a little disturbing, certainly confusing. How can this be, she asks the angel. And let's read together wherever you're sitting, even those of you in the overflow and in, in the harbor, let's read this out loud together. Luke chapter 1, verse 37. Nothing you see is impossible with God. Let's do that one more time. Nothing you see is impossible with God. I don't know what impossible situation you're going through this Christmas. But my hope is this idea and these words could be the birth of hope for some of you. Nothing's impossible with God. Hope is born in Bethlehem and it sheds light on everything that is possible in this world. Jesus grows up and he, he begins his ministry. And if you look, you don't even have to look very closely at the things Jesus says and the ideas that he's pointing us to and, and the behaviors, the activities that Jesus is all about, the priorities that he has in life. It, it causes people to end up in a pretty similar place to where Mary was. They're confused. They don't quite know what to make with it. A lot of people are shaking their heads saying, impossible, how can this be? But Jesus is simply trying to shed light on what's possible in this world. Think of some of the things Jesus says. Jesus is the one who says, God blesses you when you are mourning. And I know there are people in this room who are going through the first Christmas following the death of a family member, a friend, someone that you care deeply about. Or maybe it's not the first, maybe it's the 10th or 20th or 50th, and there's still that ache, still that sting of that loss. What do you do with this idea from Jesus, God blesses you when you are mourning? Doesn't it feel like the appropriate response would be to shake our heads and say, impossible? How can that be a blessing? Jesus says to a group of men and women, a group of nobodies gathered on a hillside in Galilee, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. He says to these men and women who are hopelessly oppressed by an empire that is corrupt and militant, and he says to the group of people listening to him, I want you to love your enemies and pray for those who are persecuting you. Impossible. How can this be? What Jesus teaches and the ideas that he has about life, about faith, about God, they cause a lot of people to question and to shake their heads, but it also, there's something about it that was attractive and they wanted to hear more. And it's not just the ideas that Jesus is teaching that seem impossible, it's the activities and the behaviors, the miracles that he's demonstrating, the power that he's demonstrating. So it doesn't take long before everywhere Jesus goes, great crowds of people want to be where Jesus is. What impossible thing is he going to say next? What impossible thing is he going to do next? Matthew chapter 8 begins with a man who has a disease called leprosy uh, coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, if you are willing, you can heal me, you can make me clean. And Jesus says, I'm willing, and he heals the man. You've got to understand, leprosy in Jesus' days meant you were kicked out of society. And so in healing him physically, Jesus is also healing him relationally. He's saying, welcome back into relationship. The next thing that happens is a powerful Roman centurion comes to Jesus. He says, I've got a servant who is sick. 
He is in so much pain, he can't get out of bed. Jesus says, take me to your servant. And the man, this powerful man, says to Jesus, I think you have enough power, you can just speak the word from wherever you are, and my servant will be healed, and that's what happens. You start to see Jesus displaying impossible power. He has the power to calm a storm at sea. The disciples shake their heads. Who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? Jesus has the power to raise a little girl from death to life, to open the eyes of the blind. And by the impossible things that he's saying and doing, and he's starting to create this movement, and suddenly it doesn't take very long before the people closest to Jesus, his closest followers, believe they've been empowered by this man to go out into the world and to do the same thing, to bring hope to the hopeless, and to cause people to believe that maybe with Jesus the impossible can be possible in their lives. And they're doing it, and they're doing it, and they're doing it, And then something happens that causes them to lose hope. It's in Matthew chapter 17. A father brings a boy to the disciples and the boy is in need of healing. The father is hoping for a miracle. He's fearing there's nothing that can be done. And the disciples pray and they try to heal this boy and they try and try and nothing helps, nothing happens. Discouraged, losing hope, they bring the boy to Jesus. And it's important to note in this story in Matthew 17... Jesus is very, he's clearly upset by this whole situation. Upset by the pain and suffering this boy is going through, which I think means Jesus is upset by the pain and suffering any human being is going through. And as you read through the story, it's pretty clear part of what Jesus is up to is helping us see there are things in this world that simply are not the way God wants them to be. And you might be going through some of those circumstances. And then Jesus takes the boy and he heals him And I want you to pay attention to what Jesus says next. If you had faith even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it would move. Nothing would be impossible. Nothing would be impossible. I know for a lot of people, this idea that is repeated throughout Scripture, that nothing is impossible with God, it kind of makes you upset and angry. Because it feels like it's saying, you must not have enough faith if you're still in the midst of an impossible situation. But look at the sign that we have over on the door, if you can put the camera over there. Jesus says at one point, keep on knocking, keep on asking, keep on seeking. Eventually, the door will be open to you. Following Jesus, Christianity, starting to have a faith that believes nothing is impossible with God. It's not necessarily about it happening right now in the moment and in the instant that we want it to happen. It's the long game. That somehow, as we get faith, even as small as a mustard seed, and that faith begins to develop and to grow, the idea that I hope you start to see is the longer you follow after Jesus, the more you invest your life and his life and his priorities, all of a sudden you start to have a faith that believes nothing is impossible. Even if the impossible thing isn't changing, it doesn't cause you to lose hope. Jesus is inviting us to follow him into a life where we absolutely believe this world is pregnant with hope. One more story to dig into this idea. It's from Mark chapter 10. It's one of my favorite stories in all of the gospels, uh, the books of the Bible that talk about the life of Jesus. It's an encounter Jesus has with a man most of us know as the rich young ruler. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. As Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
Two things I want you to notice about it. Notice the starting place. What must I do? He starts with himself. And for this man and for too many men and women that I know, we start in the wrong place when it comes to faith, when it comes to God, when it comes to church. We start with ourselves. Particularly, we start with what is it that I have to do for God, to be approved of by God, to you know, assuage God's anger, God's wrath. Makes sense that we would start with ourselves because in pretty much every other arena of our life, our closest relationships, at school, at our job, it starts with us. And what do we need to do to be successful or to make things work? But when it comes to faith, can't start with ourselves. Starting place has to be God. Who God is and what God has done, what God is doing. It's always the starting place. When we start with ourselves, in terms of a life of faith, thing, things get pretty hopeless in a hurry. Second thing I want you to notice about the question this man has, how does he address Jesus? Good teacher, he calls Jesus. Good teacher. And Jesus' response is kind of interesting. He says, why do you call me good? Only God is truly good. Only God is truly good. Keep that idea in the back of your mind as we make our way through this story. So the guy comes to Jesus with a question, and even though he starts in the wrong place, Jesus kind of plays along. It's almost like Jesus wants to say, okay, if you actually believe the starting place is yourself, let's carry that through to its logical conclusion so I can demonstrate for you how hopeless of a place that will lead you. So to answer your question in verse 19, you know the commandments, Jesus said. You must not murder, you must not commit adultery, you must not steal, you must not testify falsely, you must not cheat anyone, honor your father and mother. You know the commandments. Well, there's hundreds of commandments, Jesus only lists six, and he's being very intentional and strategic with the commandments that he chooses. Five of them are from the Ten Commandments, but one of them is not. You must not cheat anyone, Jesus says. You know the commandments, you must not cheat anyone. Well, why would Jesus include five from the Ten Commandments, but one that's just kind of thrown in there? Is it possible? Is it possible Jesus knows how the rich young ruler became rich? That he acquired his wealth by cheating others out of their money and out of their possessions. What must I do? Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. It's time for the man to respond to Jesus. And he says, I've kept all of these since I was a boy. I've kept all of them. Remember, Jesus is the one who says anger is the same as murder. Looking at someone with lust is the same as committing adultery. Jesus knows it's impossible for anyone, let alone this guy he's in a conversation with, to perfectly keep all the commandments. Jesus knows this man is addicted to his wealth, or, or maybe a more accurate way to put it would be this man is addicted to the way people view him because of his money, the way people view him because of his wealth. I don't know anyone in the Ankeny area who is addicted to their image, but this guy was. And Jesus understood this guy was actually, had a deeper desire to maintain his public, his earthly image that was greater than his desire to inherit eternal life. And I just think it's fascinating the way Jesus responds to this man in this moment in the story, verse 21. It's on the screen, and again, wherever you're worshiping right now, let's read this out loud together. Looking at the man... Jesus felt genuine love for him. There is still one thing you haven't done. 
Remember, he comes to Jesus with the question, what must I do? Jesus says, there's still one thing you haven't done. If you're familiar with the story, you know the next thing Jesus says is, go sell all your possessions, give the money to the poor, then come follow me. Well, that's three things. Is that the one thing he still hadn't done, or is Jesus trying to get to something else? What must I do? What must I do? He comes to Jesus with his hopes and his fears. He hopes he's done enough. He hopes he's obedient enough. Hopes he's successful enough. Hopes he's good enough. But deep down, he fears he is not. And so he lies to Jesus. He, he hides portions of himself from Jesus. He refuses to get honest with Jesus. Thinking somehow, I don't know, he'll trick Jesus? But Jesus knows everything. Jesus sees everything. And that's what I love about this verse. Jesus knows everything that's going on in this man's life. And still, and still, Jesus looks at the man and feels genuine love for him. The one thing this man still hadn't done had nothing to do with what commandments he needs to follow. The one thing he still hadn't done was receive God's love for him. Only God is truly good, Jesus says earlier on in this encounter. And part of the goodness of God that's personified in Jesus is God loves us in our imperfection. God loves you in your imperfection. Your, your hope is not getting good enough or obedient enough or perfect enough. Your hope is in a good, good God who loves you with a perfect love. See what great love God has for us. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. Here comes heaven to be born in a manger, to die on a cross, all to display how much God loves you. Not because you got it all together, not because you figured it out, not because you're perfect. God loves you exactly as you are, before you clean yourself up, before you get rid of the mess. God loves you in the midst of the imperfection and the mess of your life and, and of this Christmas. And so the question for the rich young ruler is the question for you and for me, not just this Christmas, but every day of our lives. Do you believe God loves you? Do you believe God loves you? I mean, it's not surprising to hear the preacher say God loves you, but do you believe it? Have you received it? Do you believe that even when you are at your worst, Jesus looks at you and feels genuine love for you? I'm convinced we all come to Jesus with our own hopes and fears. I hope that God loves me. And my deep, deep fear is I'm unlovable. And I wonder if that's why a story like Charles Barkley and his relationship with Lynn Wang, the cat litter scientist from Iowa, goes viral. Because when people hear about a story like that, it's surprising. How can someone like Sir Charles, Hall of Famer, successful, popular, well-known, how can he be in a relationship with such a common guy? And when we see a story like that, I wonder if it gives us a little bit of hope deep, deep in our soul, deep, deep in our spirit, in places we try to keep too busy that we have to actually think about, too, keep our lives too noisy to actually have to pay attention to. I wonder if when we see a story like that, it gives us a little bit of hope that maybe a God who is good and pure and perfect and holy and just and righteous could love a wretch like me. I talk to people all the time. They don't even want to get to the idea that God loves them. They're convinced God doesn't even like them. God wants to punish them. God wants to pounce as soon as they mess up. Talk to all kinds of people who have been hurt by someone in a position of authority in their life. A, a parent, a family member, a, a teacher, a, a boss. I don't know who it might be, but, 
but the person misused the power that they had. And as a result, it's difficult to trust anyone in a position of authority. And so when we start talking about God and a God who is all-powerful, it's very difficult for a lot of people to trust that that God with that kind of power could actually love them. What is it for you? Yeah, intellectually, I know. God loves me. God is love. I get it. Have you received it? Deep down inside you, does it define everything for you? Or is that actually an impossible idea for you to believe? Jesus says to the rich young ruler, go sell all your possessions, give the money to the poor, come follow me. And the scriptures say the guy walks away with his head hanging. He's not able to do it. He's not able to receive this love that is pure gift. And the disciples are kind of like, man, Jesus, aren't you a little hard on that guy? I mean, who in the world can be saved? And in verse 27 of Mark chapter 10, Jesus says, with God, all things are possible. With God, all things are possible. The rich young ruler can learn to receive God's love. Church tradition, there's no evidence of this. I just think it's a neat idea. Church tradition states the rich young ruler is actually Joseph of Arimathea, the man who, the wealthy man who gives the plot for Jesus to be buried in after Jesus' crucifixion. That at some point he actually does believe God loves him and he believes Jesus is God incarnate. It's possible, it's possible for you and for me to know and believe and receive that love and for it to change everything. I was talking with Eli our discipleship director about this idea that the one thing the rich young ruler still had to do was receive God's love. And he says, oh, that sounds a little bit like something I heard Brennan Manning say. Uh, Brennan Manning, uh, born in Brooklyn, New York, joined the Marines, fought in the Korean War. After he returned back to the States following his service, he felt a call into ministry. And so he uh, went to seminary, became a Roman Catholic priest. Think about everything you'd have to do how hard you would have to work, the study and the discipline to become first a Marine and then a Roman Catholic priest. And he does it all. He achieves it all. He's serving the poor. He's pointing people back to God. And there's still one thing he hasn't done. He would say at that point in his life, he still had not received God's love. He had his own hopes and fears. He hoped God loved him. He feared he was unlovable. And when his fears outweighed his hopes, he would turn to alcohol. And it left him in a pretty dark place in the early 1980s. He had an alcoholic collapse. He had to go to treatment for his alcoholism for six months. When he came out of treatment, he was in the recovery group for the rest of his life, trying to walk this road to recovery far from perfectly. But as he walked it, as he walked this road to recovery, he experienced God's love for him in his imperfection. He encountered the love of God in life-changing ways, and then he began to communicate it. He became this prolific author. We had to read him in the seminary that I attended. Uh, Eli had to read him in the seminary he attended. And he became a sought-after speaker because he had a way of talking about the power of God's love like few people had ever been able to do. So here's three minutes of Brennan Manning talking about the power of God's love. And again, I hope this might be the birth of hope for at least one person this Christmas. Take a look. In the 48 years since I was first ambushed by Jesus in a little chapel in the Allegheny Mountains of Western Pennsylvania, and then literally the thousands of hours of prayer, meditation, silence, and solitude over those years, I am now utterly convinced that on Judgment Day, 
the Lord Jesus is going to ask each of us one question and only one question. Did you believe that I loved you? That I desired you? That I waited for you day after day? That I longed to hear the sound of your voice? The real believers there will answer, yes, Jesus. I believe in your love and I try to shape my life as a response to it. But many of us who are so faithful in our ministry, in our practice, in our church going, are going to have to reply, <clears throat> well, frankly, no, sir. I mean, I never really believed it. I mean, I heard a wonderful, a lot of wonderful sermons and teachings about it. In fact, I gave quite a few myself. But I always thought that was just a way of speaking, a kindly lie, some Christian's pious pat on the back to cheer me on. And there's the difference between the real believers and the nominal Christians that abound in our churches across the land. No one can measure like a believer the depth and the intensity of God's love, but at the same time, no one can measure like a believer the effectiveness of our gloom, pessimism, low self-esteem, self-hatred, and despair that block God's way to us. Do you see why it is so important to lay hold of this basic truth of our faith? Because you're only going to be as big as your own concept of God. Remember the famous line of the French philosopher Blaise Pascal? God made man in his own image, and man returned the compliment. We often make God in our own image. He wants us to be as fussy, rude, narrow-minded, legalistic, judgmental, unforgiving, unloving as we are. In the past couple of three years, I have preached the gospel to the financial community in Wall Street, New York City, the airman and one of the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, a thousand physicians in Nairobi. I've been in churches in Bangor, Maine, Miami, Chicago, St. Louis, Seattle, San Diego, and honest, the God of so many Christians I meet is a God who is too small for me because he is not the God of the Word. He is not the God revealed by and in Jesus Christ who this moment comes right to your seat and says, I have a word for you. I know your whole life story. I know every skeleton in your closet. I know every moment of sin, shame, dishonesty, and degraded love that has darkened your past. Right now, I know your shallow faith, your feeble prayer life, your inconsistent discipleship, and my word is this. I dare you to trust that I love you just as you are and not as you should be, because you're never gonna be as you should be.